Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet Malachi lived about a good 400 years before the birth of Christ. His name means my, and that stands for God's messenger, my messenger. He's the last voice from God until the angel Gabriel comes down to earth to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Little is known about the man himself, but so much more about the time in which he was living. God's people were back in their own country for about a hundred years after that exile to Babylon. But things were not going well. Palestine, you must know, was a province of the Persian Empire. So the people were living under orders from a heathen king. And that meant, for instance, that there was nothing that even looked as if the throne of David would ever be restored. When you add to that that the economy was in tatters, there were crop failures which caused poverty and other hardships. And so it doesn't really surprise that the people were wondering what all those glorious promises of the Lord actually meant. Had Isaiah not spoken in glowing terms about these times after their exile? Had the prophets Haggai and Zechariah not foretold that the glory of the future would far surpass that of the past? Had they not prophesied that a great messianic era would dawn? That's why their forebears had returned from Babylon with such high hopes. But those hopes were dashed pretty soon. The struggle to make a living demanded all their attention, and everything just seemed as if there was no change forthcoming. Sure, the temple had been rebuilt, and the sacrifices were duly offered again, externally at least. Church life was back into full swing, but there was no real commitment. There was no true love and dependence for and upon the Lord. Apathy had set in. Religion had become formalized. And that in turn caused many, many sins to nestle themselves firmly into God's recently liberated church. That's why skepticism reigns and indifference and permissiveness. The priest was setting a bad example, and marriage life was a mockery of what it should be. And giving the Lord their first fruits was the last they were concerned about. No, brothers and sisters, it was not as if the people were living in open rebellion against God. We do not read anywhere that they served the idols, for instance, as they had done many a time before the exile. But the situation was serious enough, so serious that God sent Malachi, who struggles for their hearts, who points out their sins, and who wants to rekindle their faith. That can't be done by going through the motions. That's not the result of merely sticking to some religious obligations, but it must show up in a deep love for God which is translated 
in a life of godliness and covenantal obedience. Many of those maladies, brothers and sisters, are also present in our days. Do we not also witness that the Christian religion is formalized to a large extent? Do our times not give evidence that many people are just going through the motions? Are godliness and covenantal living not on the decline? Do we not live in the times of which Paul wrote that men hold the form of religion while denying the power of it? All the more reason, beloved, that we listen to the words of Malachi, who was sent by God to call his people to repentance and faith, who concludes the Old Testament with a final appeal to hold on to God's grace and elective love. Malachi, who calls a spade a spade, and who is not afraid to point out Israel's sins, but who starts with the gospel, the good news of God's love for his people as the only ground and motivation for a life that is lived for him. And so I proclaim to you the word of the Lord under the heading, Malachi proclaims that only God's love will cause his people to praise and serve him. We see, first of all, the declaration of this love, secondly, the foundation of this love, and finally, the demonstration of this love. Now, the book of Malachi, if you read through it, has a peculiar setup. It contains six dialogues between God and his people. And these dialogues take the form of disputations. For after God has made a certain statement, the people respond with their how or why. In other words, they question what God says. Not in the sense that they deny outright what he tells them, but they ask the Lord for proof and evidence. And that shows us the state of the church at that time, brothers and sisters. That reveals the deep problems that plagued God's people at that time. Oh, we said already, on the outside, things were not looking too bad. As far as the external side of church life was concerned, there had been worse times. But the people had lost their focus on the Lord. <coughs> they were so busy with their own concerns that they had no eye for his gracious love and were ignorant of the great mercies God had blessed them with. And when that's the case, beloved, when that's the case, then it doesn't really surprise that church life becomes a chore and religion turns into formalism. And that's why Malachi starts with what is foundational to the church of God. For it's only when the people are confronted with the great love of the Lord that they will also respond in a God-pleasing way. And so the oracle, or you could also say the proclamation of the word of the Lord comes to Israel via Malachi. Now you may say Israel, 
Though the returned exiles, not mainly belonging to the tribe of Judah, were the ten tribes, commonly known as Israel over against Judah, were the ten tribes not scattered all across the then known world? And do we ever read that they also came back to the promised lands? Now, it's true that the great majority of the Jews that dwelt in Palestine at that time belonged to Judah. Together with the Levites, it was they who dwelled again in the promised land. And yet, Malachi addresses them as Israel. For in the remnants that had returned, the Lord continued with his church gathering work. Israel, as you know, was the name Father Jacob received from God himself. And it denotes almost always the people as God's covenant nation. It stands for the totality of God's children as recipients of the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And how does Malachi now continue? What does he mention first of all? Does he take the people to task about their complacency and their formalism? Does he come with God's threats against a life where the spark of a living faith is lacking and people are just towing the line? No, brothers and sisters, he does not. Malachi starts with God's love. Malachi begins his book with that wonderful and incomprehensible miracle that the Lord is enamored with this people. Just imagine. Can you even begin to understand that? The Lord loving these people. God having a special place in his heart for this nation. Why? Look at their arrogance and their self-righteousness. See how they treat the Lord, as the rest of the book makes very clear. Should Malachi have called them to repentance first and foremost? Had God not every reason to fling his accusations against them and tell them to break with their sins before they may share in his love? Oh, brothers and sisters, the Lord could have done that. The Jews, could, the Jews could have never faulted him if he had followed this approach. After all, the covenant has two sides. And if God's people can't really be bothered about their responsibilities within that covenant, then the Lord does them no injustice when he punishes their unbelief and their disobedience. However, God is so full of grace and compassion so merciful and long-suffering that he starts to declare his love to them, his unconditional love. Oh, the Bible makes it very clear that if people reject that love persistently, there comes a time that God will also reject them. But that's not applicable in the situation of our text. Here we are dealing with a nation, with a people who were down and out, who had high hopes initially, but who did not see them fulfilled in any way. 
and that had made them wary and cynical. That had led to a religion that had become a shell because their heart wasn't in it anymore, because they felt forsaken by God. They had virtually given up on the promises of the glorious messianic age since everything seemed to be like that. Let us learn from God's approach, beloved. Let us follow this divine example. For how do we usually react if there are problems? In the church, for instance, when people show little zeal, when they live in a rut, well, then we start to point fingers. We get all upset about what should be changed. No, of course, that's not wrong per se. Things certainly must change. You can't serve God when you are just going through the motions. But in the meantime, we forget about God's love. We forget that the church with all its problems and difficulties remains God's treasure, the apple of his eye. And that's why this approach does not really produce results either. People either shrug their shoulders or they become more confused. But when we start with God's love, brothers and sisters, then we remind each other of his wonderful compassion and goodness, then we introduce the only pleading grounds that can and that will melt the hardest hearts and is able to overcome the coldest indifference. And that's what the Lord does here. Hear him say to his church, I have loved you. And the Hebrew uses a verb form that does not only apply to the past, but that continues in the present. So God's love is not only a matter of yesterday, but of today as well. It stands for that covenantal promise that remains valid for all time. However, the Lord here especially wants to remind them of the past. He declares his love to his people by wanting them to think about their history. The rest of the text makes that very clear. But the people react and say, how have you loved us? Isn't that a terrible statement when you come to think of it? Fancy doubting the word of God. Fancy taking issue with what he tells you, especially when it concerns his love for his people. That shows you, brothers and sisters, how far these Jews had wandered from the true service of God. This reaction reveals the real cause of their flat and empty church life. For if you don't believe in the promises of God's love, if you cannot attest to his grace and, and mercy, why should you live as a Christian? What's there to inspire you to seek God's glory? Do you see the preoccupation of these people with their own concerns, brothers and sisters? And do you realize that we often act in a similar way when we face difficulties, when we can't place many things? 
either in church or in our family or in our personal life, then it does not take all that much that we start to question God's promises. Then we wonder about His faithfulness. Then we say, if not to someone else, at least to ourselves, what's the sense, really? God doesn't care. For else, He would intervene, would He not? Why doesn't He solve our problems? Why doesn't He prove that His concerns? Nothing seems to change. My prayers seem to bounce off a sky of brass. And if that continues, brothers and sisters, don't be surprised that God's service loses its sparkle and church life becomes a habit and our joy in God disappears. The love of the Lord does not mean all that much to us anymore. And we finish up becoming cynical or self-righteous or just hang in there. And that was the trouble with the Jews of Malachi's days. They were, they were not just depressed. It was not a psychological problem that they were struggling with. But they had lost sight of God's wonderful love. They were so busy with their own problems that they forgot what the Lord had done for them. Was it not a miracle that they had returned from the exile? Had God not blessed them beyond expectation to bring them back to their own country? Who had ever thought that the temple would be rebuilt after the devastation by King Nebuchadnezzar so that they could worship God again in freedom, so that the service of reconciliation was restored, so that their sins could be forgiven through the blood of the sacrifices that pointed to the Lamb of God. And what if they had gone further back into their history? What about the exodus from Egypt, for instance? Was that not a miracle of God's love as well? Why did He set them free from their bondage? Why did God give them His law? Why did He confirm His covenant with them on Mount Sinai, pledging them His unconditional love and promising them His always present care? Oh, brothers and sisters, if you forget the great deeds of God in the history of salvation, if you no longer stand amazed at what the Lord has done also for you, also personally, then it shouldn't surprise that things go from bad to worse, for we can never force the hand of God. He hasn't promised to take all our promises away either. Let's be careful that we don't expect push-button solutions. Let's not get infected by the notion that God owes us immediate answers. Rather, let's remember His love, His wonderful love, with which He also came to us, setting us apart as His people, confirming to us His glorious promises. Can you explain? Can you explain why you may belong to God's people? Are you any better than the millions who live and who die without God? Is it our doing 
that we may hear the gracious gospel of forgiveness and life from Sunday to Sunday? Is it not a miracle that the Lord preserved us in the true doctrines of salvation? Oh, you may face many problems in your personal family or church life. A lot of things can happen that cause you to wonder. People can disappoint you. Sin can do a lot, a lot of damage. But as long as you remember that the Lord declared his love also to you, as long as you never forget that he's always concerned also about you, then you will be able to go on. Then you will never write him off, for then you find rest, even if your world is upside down in God and his love. And that love will cause you to hold on to him and to trust that all will turn out well, because God's love has never yet let anyone down. And that brings us to our second point, the foundation of this love. Malachi continues with his sermon. And he takes them way back into the past, to the very beginning of their life as a nation, a nation of Israel. He takes them to the tent of Isaac and Rebekah. For the Lord is anxious to teach them the foundation of his love. That was not due to themselves. That was not because they, Israel in this case, had endeared themselves to God in contrast to all others. No, it was pure grace. It was divine mercy. For God asks, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. And also the verb hated, brothers and sisters, continues into the present. God continued to hate Esau. Now why is that? Why is Israel privileged to be God's people while Esau is rejected? Why do they enjoy the promises of forgiveness and life everlasting and Esau does not? Why are they the heirs of the new creation that the Messiah will establish while Esau will remain foreign to it? Let's just look at it from a human perspective for a moment. Both Esau and Jacob, and Jacob, yes, were grandsons of father Abraham and sons of Isaac. And they were brothers, even twins. And what's more, Esau was the oldest. Humanly speaking, he was the man who should have received the greatest blessing. If we had our way, then Esau should have been the father of the church, so to speak. But that's not the case. The Lord makes it indisputably clear that his church is founded on his good pleasure. And that's why the Lord says to their mother, Rebecca, the elder 
shall serve the younger, Genesis 25, 21. And that was said before they were even born. The youngest, Jacob, the weakest, the one who had the least going for them, humanly speaking, he was chosen to be the forefather of Jesus Christ. In the line of his descendants, the Lord gathers his precious church. Oh, how does God's electing love shine through these words? How clearly do we hear that the church is saved by grace alone? For what does God teach his people here? Why does he mention these words through the mouth of Malachi? To convince them that they've only got God's gracious love to be thankful for. To drive home to them that they must find their rest and security in God's sovereignty and divine compassion. For Father Jacob was also a sinful man. It was not his doing that the Christ was to come from his loins. It was completely due to God's mercy. And Esau, what did he have to learn from this? Does God tell him that he should lose all hope because he was rejected after all? That's how some people speak about the doctrine of election. Then they say, well, what can you do about it? If the Lord has not chosen you, well, then everything really is a waste of time. Then you may as well live the way you want to, for nothing will change God's eternal counsel. But brothers and sisters, that's not true. That's one of the biggest lies Satan spouts around. For also Esau was a covenant child. Also, Esau had the promises of the Lord sealed in his body by means of the circumcision. As far as that goes, there was no difference at all between Esau and Jacob. But this is what Esau had to learn. He had to realize that God's blessings are due to his grace. That a man can never claim them as his rights. And that's what Esau denied. That's what he didn't want to hear. He thought that as the oldest, he should receive the promise of bringing forth the Christ. But God said no. In the matter of salvation, it's not human power or seniority or whatever else that carries the day, but it's my sovereignty. That's why the Lord chose Jacob. Not because he was more worthy, but to show that God's love is founded only on his good pleasure. Esau had to acknowledge Jacob as his superior. He had to bow before God's good pleasure. But that's what he didn't want. That's what he was too proud for. And that's why he rebelled. That's why the blessings of the covenant really left him cold. He frittered his birth right away. A good meal was more important to him than the promises of God. And later on, he married unbelieving girls. What did he care? What was God's covenant to him? What did the promise of the Savior really mean to him? 
Nothing. Nothing really. Esau was far more interested in the things of this world than in the matters of God's service. And that's why God rejected him, tells Hebrew 12, 17 us. That's why God hated him. Sure, ultimately it all goes back to God's inscrutable counsel. Ultimately it concerns the fact that Esau was not elected. But let's be very careful that we don't misinterpret that. Let us never try to look behind the veil of God's secret will. We must always start with God's promise, which is a sure and a reliable promise. But if we really don't care for it, if we refuse to believe it, then we show that we have no time for God. And that's what Esau revealed. For we may never blame the Lord for Esau's unbelief. That was his own doing. He carries the responsibility of his rejection because he refused to live from grace. He hated God's good pleasure. He rebelled against the sovereignty of the Lord. Now why does Malachi remind the Jews of, his, of this episode in their distant past? Well, he does so for no other reason but to show the gracious love of the Lord towards Israel and to convince them that they have no reason whatsoever to doubt that love and to go through life as if the Lord no longer cares for them. Israel's history, as it unfolded in the tent of Isaac, is one ringing proof that it is God's love and God's love alone that allows them to be his people and that assures them at the same time that it will never come to an end. Never. What about Romans 11 then? What about the hardening that came over Israel some 470 years later when God rejected Israel as a nation and when he went with his gospel to the Gentiles, and that includes us. Yes, there is one exception. And that is when God's gracious love is rejected, persistently rejected. When people do not care whatsoever for his incomprehensible mercy. When, plainly said, when they refuse to believe. That has always been the case. And that still is, for there are no promises for the unbelieving, for those who reject the love of God. And that's why it's such a terrible statement, brothers and sisters. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And yet, and yet, it's given to us as a word of comfort, first of all. A comfort that can only be enjoyed when you believe. The doctrine of election, brothers and sisters, is not revealed in the Bible to scare people and to make them despair, perhaps. Rather, it's the very opposite. For it provides us with a certainty that can't be found anywhere else but a certainty of faith. Faith in the promises of the gospel. 
Faith in the love of God for his people. A love that goes back to eternity. A love that is for 100% due to God's good pleasure. But if that faith is rejected, if there is no desire to serve the Lord, if people only want to live their own life, then indeed they will incur God's hatred. And then it happens that the Lord withdraws His love and grace and destroys those who refuse to serve Him. And that's why these words are a solemn call to Israel not to doubt the love of their God, but to respond to it in trusting faith. And it comes to us, brothers and sisters, with just as much force. For the New Testament church is the continuation of the Israel of old. And also to us, God says, do you see my love for you? Do you remember what I've done for you? Especially when I sent my only son to the cross to die for the sins, not of those that loved him and wanted to serve him, but to die for the sins of rebels, of people who left to themselves would have happily lived on in their sin. Think of your baptism. Remember that those promises were sealed to you. Are you down perhaps? Have you lost the joy of faith perhaps? <coughs> Does it seem as if God just doesn't listen to your prayers anymore? Are you at a loss maybe as to whether he truly loves you too? Well, there's only one remedy for such thoughts, brothers and sisters. There's only one cure for such doubts. There's only one answer that allows you to conquer them. And that is the unconditional love of your covenant God, revealed to us now in Jesus Christ, shown to us as never before. And once again, it has been promised to you with an oath Christ died for sinners. Our Savior laid down His life for those who are not worthy of it at all. And that's a promise that belongs to the church of God and to every one of its members. And if you simply trust that promise, if with the help of the Spirit you focus your attention on that wonderful truth, then you won't buckle under. Then you will persevere. Then the joy and the certainty of faith will return and you'll be able to live from that quiet conviction that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For then, then you know Yes, you know that your salvation is God's work from A to Z. That it's founded on His unconditional love because Christ fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant for you and for me. So that there's only one thing you must do and that is believe this wonderful gospel and love the Lord for it. And that brings us to our final point, the demonstration 
of this love. Now you understand that this demonstration here in our text is tied to the situation of those days. The greatest demonstration of God's love is seen on Golgotha, on the cross. But that was still 430 years away. Malachi in our text verses illustrates God's electing love for Israel over against his unbridled hatred against his enemies. And he uses Esau as an example. Esau and his descendants, or Esau, also called Edom, as a nation. However, in Esau's example, God also teaches us that the truth of our text applies to all who reject God and harass the church of Christ and have no greater desire than to see her destroyed. For how did God hatred, how did God's hatred of Esau manifest itself? Was it only restricted to his rejection from God's people? No, it went much further. During the Old Testament history, Esau suffered the wrath of God in a very special way. Many prophecies of the Bible announce God's curse upon this nation. For its entire existence is colored by its hatred against God and his people. If it had any chance to cause destruction and mayhem amongst Israel, it would not pass the opportunity. Let me just give you one example. When Jerusalem was raised to the ground by King Nebuchadnezzar, some 200 years before our text, the Edomites were all too keen to give him a hand. We read about that from the prophecies of Obadiah. And that wasn't the only time. On at least four occasions, Edom had brutally plundered the city of God and devastated the promised lands. So it does not surprise, brothers and sisters, that Isaiah 34 mentions Edom as representing all the enemies of God's people. Their vindictive spirit and their unbridled hatred against his brother nation reveals its total disregard and disdain for the God of the covenants. And that's why the Lord cursed Esau. He punished it according to its terrible sins. He caused its country to become desolate and barren. He depopulated Esau, or Edom I should say, and he turned it into a wilderness where the jackals lived, predators out to kill. And so the country of Edom came to stand for death and destruction. Now, it's hard to determine exactly how this came about. Most Bible scholars think of the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans was an Arab tribe, tribe that overran Edom and that applied a scorched earth policy about a hundred years before our text. Whatever the case, Esau was dealt a devastating blow from which it would never recover. 
Oh, they tried. Just read verse 4. There you hear the language of the braggarts, the people that believe in themselves. Has your country been raised, they say? Has our country been raised, they say? Have we perhaps suffered a humiliating defeat? Well, let's roll up our sleeves and move on. We may be in trouble right now, but it won't last. We're going to get back on top. We will build bigger cities and stronger defenses. We will make a name for ourselves. We never give up. But what does the Lord say? They may build, but I will tear down. And I will keep doing that until they give up. Until their country is called the wicked country. The nation with whom the Lord is angry forever. And that's exactly what happened, brothers and sisters. Eden never got back on its feet. They were not able to displace the Nabataeans, but they were forced to live in the desert. And in due time, they ceased to exist as a nation altogether. They were dispersed amongst the peoples of the East. And you will see that, Israel, says the Lord. With your own eyes, you will witness how my wrath will make a full end of Esau. And you will say, great is the Lord. Not beyond, but rather above the border of Israel. How does all of this demonstrate God's love for his people, we ask? What is the great comfort the Lord is keen to teach his church? What else but the assurance that she may enjoy the goodness of their God? What else but the assurance and the proof that God destroys his enemies but has compassion on his children? No, that does not mean as if God's church will be free from calamities. It's not a guarantee that the Lord's people will enjoy prosperity and bliss by necessity. Israel's history gives us more than one example of that. Just remember the exile, for instance. Just think of God's anger when he sent his people to Babel, where they languished for 70 years, far away from the promised land, without a temple and a regular church life. But this is what it means. Israel eventually came back from Babel. Yes, they also came to a country that was devastated and in ruins, but it didn't remain a devastation. God's people were allowed to rebuild their cities and the temple. The ministry of reconciliation was reestablished for although God also punishes the sins of his children, that punishment does not proceed from his hatred, but from his love. Because he always seeks our repentance and salvation. And that's what they and we should never forget. That's the proof that also in Israel's present circumstances during the time of Malachi, they should not question God's love, but they should go on in faith and in repentance. Edom's total 
and permanent destruction or to remind them of the grace and the judgment of God. Grace for those who believe. Judgment for those who persistently reject Him. And that's why God says, you will see it. And you will say, how great is the Lord. How faithful to His promises. How good toward His people. And that also ought to be our reaction, brothers and sisters. For to forget the faithfulness of God and His love that remains a permanent danger. Especially when things are not going too well. When we struggle with problems. Or when we can't understand why God doesn't change what we love to see changed. Then it happens that we question God's love. Then our faith can become a routine. Oh, then we still go to church. We do not necessarily become irreligious. But there's no real heartfelt commitment. We are so busy with ourselves that we have no eye for the demonstration of God's love which He also reveals in the condemnation of His enemies. For where are those enemies of His church that have harassed her for such a long time already? What happened to the Roman Inquisition? What became of Nazi Germany? Where is the communist empire? God's wrath made a full end of them all. Oh, that's not to say that there are no enemies left, but also they stand under God's control. They may do us, they may do us harm, but they will never be able to separate us from the love of God. And that's why we can go forward with confidence. That's why we do not need to be overly concerned. Oh, the enemies of God still boast. They keep telling themselves that they will overcome. But we know, we know it's a lie. And it won't be long before we will see it either. When their everlasting ruin will be revealed on the day the Lord Jesus returns. Then we will sing, great is the Lord over and towards his church. <clears throat> no, once again the Lord has not promised us plain sailing. But we are certain of a safe arrival. If we turn to him in faith and repentance, if we hold him to his promises, if we do not question his love, a love that has reached its zenith in Jesus Christ, trust in that gospel, brothers and sisters, as the only antidote to complacency and formalism. See how Satan was defeated. Witness how his evil realm has already been destroyed in principle. That's why you can say, how great is the Lord over the country of Israel. That means, in today's terms, how great is His gracious love towards His children. Amen.